Good evening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today we are chatting with Dr. Angela Jackson of New Prophet. In just a moment, she's going to be with us and tell us all about the work that she's doing in the, the area of impact investing and a lot of other things that Dr. Jackson is involved with. We'll, we'll hear about all of that. And in the meantime, also, let me remind you, we are on Facebook. You can find us there, and we do post our upcoming programs as well as recordings of our old programs. You can also find them on KBMF, ButteAmericaRadio.org. And uh, email us if you'd like to contact uh, myself or anyone here at Heartstock Radio. That's at heartstockradio at gmail.com. And in just a moment, Dr. Jackson will be with us. This is Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Clark Grant is in the studio. Thanks so much for listening. This is Heartstock Radio, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Angela Jackson. Hi, Dr. Jackson. How are you? Hey, good morning, Carol. How are you doing? We are doing great. It is a beautiful but crisp and frosty day here in Butte, Montana. And um, where are you speaking to us or with us from? Yeah, so I am right outside of Boston in Brookline, Massachusetts, um, where I live for a majority of the time and sheltered it here in place. And I really wanted to give our listeners an intro here. Uh, You have a a lot going on. So um, can can you kind of give us the, the lowdown, what it is that you're working on right now? Absolutely. So I am a managing partner at New Profit, and New Profit is a venture philanthropy firm that invests in social entrepreneurs. You know, people are developing solutions to social, cultural, and environmental issues. We help innovators strengthen their organizations and, and scale their impact. About two years ago, I joined the organization because I was drawn to the idea of how do we fund solutions behind the, today's most pressing social problems. The people in charge of like making decisions about whose ideas get funded have the, you know, have the ability to influence this process in a more equitable way. And I'm just really proud to work in an organization that's pursuing equity as a systems change strategy and doing that through the way it through the way it funds. I tell everybody, you know, every time we invest, be it an investor like myself or you know, me buying personally, every dollar we're making an investment for the world we want to see. And that that's really a critical importance. Yes, and this is a kind of a, a recurring topic here on Heartstock. So it's of monumental importance, especially with all that we have seen. We were just talking before I, I hit the record button. We were just talking about what a year 2020 has been and the gift that it has given us of information and knowledge. So before we we dive and delve into all of that, we'd really like to get to know you, 
Dr. Jackson, and a little bit about your path and what led you to this work. Yeah, for me, I was raised by my grandparents outside of Chicago in Purdue City, about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. My grandfather worked at the local Chrysler family uh, factory, and my grandmother was a nurse's aide, so blue-collar workers. And one thing that has really dawned on me, especially in this moment, you know, my grandfather and grandmother um, in the midst of this pandemic, had they been alive, would have been considered essential workers, right? They would have been on the front line and really exposed to to COVID, et cetera. But at that time when they were working at, you know, at the local factory, and again, my grandmother at a nursing home, um, they had benefits. Um, my grandfather had insurance. He was able to, on his salary, raise a family and send me to college. And he was part of a union at that time, too. And what I just came to realize and recognize is that there must be dignity in all work. And how do we invest in a way and how do we organize our world in a way where people can do the work of their choosing, right? If they work 40 days, you know, 40 hours a week, that they can do that work and that they can earn a living wage and they can have what, you know, many say is the American dream. And, and, and many times I feel like I'm the beneficiary of an older America, right? Where that could be, you know, I was able, my grandparents were able to send me to college. I was able to pursue an advanced degree. And unfortunately, what we know today is that that's not possible for many families. There are many families working two and three jobs and are still unable to put food on the table for their families and pay their rent. So really, my experience growing up, you know, in a blue collar family, a working class family, comparing that to what is true today really drives me to want to advocate for those who are having a hard time today, not just because of the pandemic, because they were ha- literally, they were having a hard time before the pandemic. And our social safety net is a uh, is threadbare. And I think a lot about how we can help those families who want to work, who want, you know, to have that dream for their children. And where did you grow up there? Um, I know you mentioned um, in the Chicago area, but give us a little flavor of what that life was like the schools that you went to and how your path kind of evolved over time. Um, yeah. Tell yeah, us a so little bit what that, what that was like. Yeah. Absolutely. So I grew up in a town, it's a village, it's called Beach Park, Illinois. Mm. It's almost equal distance between Chicago and Milwaukee, which is very interesting. And I tell people it's very, very Midwestern. Um, Just to give you context, the county that I was adjacent to is very conservative. Um, It votes Republican. Uh, The school I went to, you know, I'm African-American. The school I went to was predominantly white. It was a public school. And that's where I went to for most of my school years. And it was really interesting that my first two years of school, I went to a very different school that was predominantly black. And my grandmother moved to Beach Park in this area um, really in search of, of better public schools. Um, she couldn't, they couldn't afford private schools, so she tried to look for the best public schools she could find. And when I think about that public school, it had things like art. It had band. You know, we had computers early, for example. Um, and it was a really well-funded school. 
And so I had opportunities to study languages and, you know, I had, you know, consistent teachers who were more like tenured teachers. And so when I think about all of that, those experiences coupled with, you know, my grandparents, they didn't have a chance at higher education. Um, My grandfather um, had to stop going to school when he was in third grade so he could start working to help his family. My grandmother left school and high school to start, again, working to support her family as well. So the fact that they had the wherewithal to to move to this new district that was well-funded. And then, again, I was encircled by a district and teachers who believed in me. And I had, you know, unique opportunities to pursue my passion, my passion in writing. You know, I started writing for the school newspaper. And so when I think about those, again, those formative years of my grandparents knowing that they didn't have the opportunities to go for advanced education, but yet they had the wherewithal to, to find a district that could really embrace me and where I could learn, grow, and thrive. Um, I think about how all of that has led me to what I'm doing today. And, and really, you know, my passion in saying everybody deserves those opportunities. You shouldn't just be lucky to have them. And most certainly, you shouldn't have to move to get them, right? Like everyone deserves a good public school in their neighborhood. Yeah, and, and that could be a whole entire show in and of itself is the role of education in raising us all up and more or less leveling, creating equity, right? Uh, you know, that's definitely a heartfelt truth for myself. You know, I feel like education is a path for sure. Uh, it, it, it has been and it was for me. Um, I can definitely attest to that. So, and then you, you went on to college. Where did, you, where did you study and what did you study? You know, I think that um, the fact that we're, we're calling you Dr. Angela is really a beautiful thing. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it, it, it's really interesting because when I started out, um, I wanted to be a journalist and a teacher, always. And uh, for me, journalism was all about telling the stories of people that ordinarily you may not see on the news. So for undergraduate, I went to University of Missouri-Columbia in their journalism school that's pretty highly rated and had the opportunity there to work at a NBC affiliate as a reporter, a general assignment reporter. And, and news is very interesting because when you go in, um, I would go in with my happy-go-lucky story, and they say, okay, you have to, every day you have to come in with a story idea. So I'd come in with my happy story, and then I'd talk to the news director, and he'd, go, he'd ask all of the reporters that day what are their stories. And he said, okay, that, that story sounds good, Angela. He's like, but someone just got hit by a car, so you, you need to go out there and, uh, and report on that. And, and one thing I, I found out, to learn about the news. Um, we had this saying, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a focus on more, I would say, negative news than good news, right? And and for me, I was really passionate about telling the stories of people who have persevered uh, against the odds, um, stories of help, neighbors helping neighbors, you know, things that we should be proud about. And and there, there wasn't a lot of space um, in, in that particular newsroom for that. So 
decided that news may not be the pathway for me. So after that, I actually went and started working in the public sector, really, excuse me, the private sector. My career started there and I was leading business development for organizations like Viacom and Nokia. And while I was working internationally, I just began to wonder if global companies can deliver their products consistently and with quality at scale. What would it take to deliver social innovations like education and health in a similar manner? And this question just just kept it in my mind, you know, because the way that when I was working in the private sector that I was judged, um, let's say Nokia, if I, you know, sold a phone, if we introduced a new phone and I only sold it to 100 people, that would be a failure. If we only sold it to, you know... Yeah, 100,000 people, that would be a failure. Like we were really looking to reach millions and and reach them with a high quality product. So, you know, for myself, I wondered what would that mean if you were to think that, think about that in the education and the health sector, what would it mean to reach millions with a high quality product? Um, This thinking really is what drove me to social entrepreneurship. You know, I wanted to think through how we could better equip people with the skills they needed to succeed in a global economy and workforce. And that led me to found an organization, Global Language Project, that partners with school districts to create world language programs for children, starting at the early earliest ages. And after doing that for eight years, I decided to go back to get my doctorate and I did an education leadership and really thinking about how, what is the intersection of scale, systems change, and what are those levers? And one of those levers being philanthropy and being capital that can help achieve social good at scale. And the investment dollars, right? So making sure that enterprises who are working in this field actually have the funding, which you know, it's, it's, the statistics are so dismal currently. And that's why it's so exciting, I think, for me, to see folks like yourself working in this arena. And um, we're going to take our little midway break here. And in just a moment, we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit more deeply with Dr. Jackson. This is Heartstock. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. We'll be back in just a moment. Stock Radio, and today our guest is Dr. Angela Jackson. Hi, Dr. Jackson. How are you? Hey, I'm so happy, happy to be back. Thank you again for having me. I'm really, you know, enjoying this conversation, and it's uh, it's energizing um, to just hear your show talking about these issues, and and really having a public that's thinking about how they can get involved and how we can invest in a different way. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into that. What What is at the top of your list? I mean, there, there's kind of two ways we can go at this. Is One is you're kind of at the center of things, but from the, the outside looking in 
for our listeners, what are some of the most important things that they can get involved with and things that they can do to help bring about these changes that, you know, in my opinion, are really in all of our best interests? Yeah. So, I mean, there's one thing that we should all be thinking about now, and I'm sure that a lot, many listeners will find that is true, is that we're in this moment of lifelong learning. You know, it used to be traditionally you could, you know, go finish high school, go to college, you know, get an undergrad degree or maybe an advanced degree, and then you're done. And then you could go to work and you'd be finished. You know, what we've seen in this pandemic is like time has moved in what one colleague said, you know, in dog years almost, right? Yeah, uh, it feels we, like you that. Know, technology has really leaped forward. You know, I work in what's called the future of work and, and really what I've been calling it lately is the present of work. And so, you know, we all should be thinking about what what are the implications of lifelong learning? just on our society as a whole. So the things I think about are like, who's going to pay for that lifelong learning? How do we make that lifelong learning opportunities affordable and accessible? And so that comes into thinking about an impact investing. I typically am looking at, you know, who are thinking about accelerated learning programs? Because with this pandemic, many people have lost their jobs and some of these sectors are not coming back. So think of somebody who's, you know, worked the last 15 years in the travel industry. You know, we once thought that travel industry and restaurants were recession proof. Um, we know now that some of those careers that they're not right. And, and people are thinking real time, how do they transition into a new career? And so when I'm looking at investing, I'm thinking about what are the accelerated learning programs that people can take advantage of? That doesn't mean that they can stop working and that they will need to stop working and go back to school because they don't have time for that, right? They, they are thinking, like, how do they pay their rent next month? But what are the programs that people can learn things that can help them get another high-paying job, right? A well-paying job with a living wage. And so really thinking about for just personally myself, what are the things that I need to learn to ensure that I'm you know, I'm able to sustain in the workforce of today that's like ever evolving with technology. And and thinking about like in terms of like charitable giving and investing in nonprofits, really pushing the organizations that we maybe volunteer with, that we, we give donations to, to really think about how are they thinking about leveraging technology? You know, there are a lot of programs will say, you know, pre-COVID would say we have to do our programs in person. You know, that's our secret sauce is to do it one-to-one. Well, now that social distancing, right, that's not possible. So a lot of um, organizations are thinking real-time how they use technology to reach many people. And so I say we should just continue to do that, even post-COVID. There's certain places in this country, you know, again, I grew up in a smaller town, they didn't have access to the programs that big cities do because people did like place-based programs. Like how can we think of the opportunity that this new learning has afforded because of the pandemic to reach more people in the most difficult places? Yes. Uh, and I agree, you know, this is um, a dawning of a new age and we truly can make it better going forward. Let's talk a little bit about the grand challenge and what that is, why is it important? 
So the, the Future of Work Grand Challenge, we actually started this two years ago. And what we went out and did, when I say we knew profit, we interviewed some of the top employers in the country. So I think the Department of Defense, of McDonald's, you know, the people in the health sector, just to really find out what were the skills that people would need in the future and really to understand from these employers and leader, leading thinkers how people were going to obtain these skills. And so that led to what we're doing right now, which is called the Future of Work Grand Challenge. And it's a $6 million initiative that's powered by XPRIZE and MIT Solves. And for the folks that don't know XPRIZE, they're widely credited with launching the private space market. And what they love to do is to use the wisdom of the crowd. Their, their thinking is that a good idea can come from anyone to solve some of the big social challenges, like how do we upskill Americans? And so what we wanted to do was produce what we call the grand challenge. And it works with entrepreneurs to uncover the most promising solutions that will rapidly reskill displaced workers into living jobs with living wages. And one thing that we had hoped to do with this challenge really is to leverage the wisdom of the crowd. You know, our core focus here is to accelerate how new technologies and solutions um, that will ultimately train and place millions of workers into higher skilled and higher wage careers. And just kind of help us understand how that works. You know, what is the challenge? How do participants get involved and how how this is going to impact the general public? Yes, yeah, now this is the exciting part of it. So we, we launched the challenge in June and we had over 1,200 like, people who were interested in applying with their ideas. We closed the challenge on November 20th and we selected 308 ideas that we are planning to vet. And, and what will be interested, and this is where the public can get involved, two things. We will go through a judging process where we have an independent panel of judges that will narrow down these, you know, 300 and some odd applications to 15. And those 15 will be paired with workforce boards in six local communities. And so those communities are San Diego, West Michigan, Hartford, Connecticut, Dallas, Texas, Worcester, Massachusetts, and Hampton Roads, Virginia. And what we will do in the beginning of first quarter of next year is that we will actually take these entrepreneurs, their solutions, and we will match them with job seekers to see how many people that they can train and place in living wage jobs. And the solutions who are able to train and place um, the highest number of job seekers will be eligible for a $2.5 million prize purse. Mm. And where the general public comes in is that we are going to make these solutions available nationwide to job centers. And we are going to share the information about what worked, what didn't work, and under what context. That is really exciting. <laughs> so I know that you, we could talk more about this, but there are other things that you are involved with and working on currently. One of the things that I, I really am excited about is CHIEF. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Chief and why it's important? Yeah, no, I'm excited to be a founding member of Chief. It's a network built to drive more women in positions of power and to keep them there. Um, especially when I think about 
you know, my role in the future of work, you will find that, you know, there is not a ton of women who are having and leading these conversations, right? And if you think about Chief, it's the only organization specifically designed for senior women leaders to strengthen their leadership journey, you know, cross-pollinate ideas across industries, and to really affect change from the top down. Um, this is the kind of community building and mentorship that only strengthens the work that I do at New Profit, you know, building cross-sector partnerships to net more meaningful and equitable impact. And, you know, I always say to my team, I say to anyone who knows me, you know, it takes a village truly to have impact. No one is doing it alone. And Chief is an acknowledgement of that. When you bring women together who are powerfully leading for change, uh, the world changes, right? Our schools changes, our city changes, and, you know, our government, our communities. And so I'm really excited to be part of this network to see what comes out of it, what types of partnerships come out of it. Yes. And, you know, this is a recurring theme on the show, why it's so important that everyone have a seat at the table. Can you share with us a little bit about your perspective on this, Dr. Jackson, please? Absolutely. Um, and, and the seat at the table, I think, is essential. You know, I recently wrote a, a piece for Social Standard Re- uh, Stanford Review, and it's talked about proximity and proximate leaders. You know, having a seat at the table is like, at this point, is not a nice to have. It's just really essential, right? If we want effective policy, if we want effective solutions, if we really want change. And one thing that I've done personally, when I talk about the future of work, I stood up a worker advisory board. And these are workers who, you know, last year who didn't make a living wage, who've been impacted by COVID. You know, when I think about talking about the future of work and a seat at the table, it's ensuring that they're that they, the workers who are experiencing this job market today, that they have a seat at the table and they're sharing their lived realities. Like, what does it mean to look for a job in the middle in the midst of a pandemic? Right? What does it mean when you are remote schooling your your kids during the day, your job searching at night, and your caregiving? And so for every panel that I do, I'm always inviting these workers to the table, right? And really privileging like their voices and giving their voices space. And that's the same for women at all levels. And and that's another thing that I'm proud of at New Profit. You know, I'm a managing partner there, but we make sure, you know, from managing partner down to people who are just, you know, starting their careers, that, that their voices are heard in a meaningful way and that they're included. You know, we talk about diversity a lot. And that's just the first step inclusion is really where we're at. And the fact that when you invite someone to the table, that you hear their voice and you act on their recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I was hoping that you could share with us a little bit more about New Profits approach. It's, it sounds like it's a hybrid model. Yeah. Which is exciting. Help us understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New Profit, it's hard. So New Profit, you know, founded 20 years ago by Vanessa Kirsch. She 
really fundamentally believe like the power of convening. And you will see this with the Future of Work Grand Challenge um, that we have uh, put together and that I'm leading. What we have done is this collaboration is supported by partners who cut across all different sectors and industries. You know, for example, most notably, you know, we are supported with corporations like Walmart, Goodwill, Accenture, Comcast, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and it's funded by nonprofit organizations like Strata Education Network, Imaginable Futures, and the Mortgage Family Foundation. And then we have implementation partners like Jobs for the Future, JFF, and JobCase. And and people might say, gosh, that's a lot of partners. But when you're thinking about real complex social problems, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it takes a village. It really takes a cross-sector partnership to tackle these issues. When I say, how do we ensure that there's lifelong learning opportunities, that's going to mean that you're going to have to have collaborations from, you know, education, from employers to, to public government. And so what we try to do at New Profit is at the beginning of any initiative, and we're addressing a problem we're trying to solve is understanding who are the key stakeholders that need to be at the table. And then we go out and we bring them to the table to have a conversation. Because typically what we have found and what I've found personally is that you're not the sole person working on an issue. There are people who've done it before you, right? Who who had some progress, who had some stumbles, and how do you learn from them so that you can then leave room to make maybe different mistakes and have more impact? Yeah, it's a, it's an incre- incremental evolution, it seems, and we're at a, a pretty critical, hmm, and, but yet exciting place. Can you go a little bit more into the nuts and bolts? So it sounds like it's a a problem-focused ap- approach. You decide what it is that you're going to take on. And then how does the investing come into play? In, in some instances, you're working with nonprofits. And in some instances, you're working with social entrepreneurs. Is that how it works? That's exactly it. And so what we try to do is there's certain issues that we've just forever cared about that we see are just key lever issues around education, right? And it's, you know, early childhood education, you know, it's looking at, you know, post-secondary, it's K-12, post-secondary, and then, you know, the area that I focus on, adult adult learning, like education is just a primary issue for everyone that we see. And we're always thinking about, like, how can we have more effective educational opportunities? And so what we do is we're out convening and we're always is talking to people, uh, educators, investors, to understand what solutions they are looking at. And when we hear a promising solution around education or one of the other areas that we care about, for example, um, we are very interested in, in, in people who have been incarcerated and how they re-enter the workforce. We're very interested in civic engagement and thinking about how do we get more Americans um, more actively involved in civics. So when we hear of an organization or an entrepreneur who has an idea that we think could have you know, real impact, we have two um, areas that they can come in. One is that we have catalyzed cohorts 
where we give between a fifty and $150,000 grant to people to help them just really create their MVP and to test their idea within a community. And that's very similar to the Future Work Grand Challenge, right? We're going to have 15 entrepreneurs. They're each going to receive $100,000 each to test their ideas in those six communities that I mentioned earlier. And that's for them to learn and to learn in the community, learn about what works and what doesn't work and to really iterate on their solutions. Once those solutions are available and ready for scale, we have another set of investments we do called build investments. And those investments are a million dollars over four years. And what we give in those investments are, one, you receive a new profit deal partner. So we'll have someone like myself that will sit on the board of the organization that becomes an executive coach and thought partner to the CEO. And then, of course, there's the million-dollar capital unrestricted, right? And all of our grants we feel are unrestricted because we trust our entrepreneurs to use the dollars where they think will have the most impact. And we help them scale their organizations, you know, one through strategic advice, but others um, through our convening, again, bringing them together with other funders and other entrepreneurs to think about how do we have systems impact. And when we look at our portfolio, we try to invest in a way with a systems focus where we're investing in entrepreneurs that if you bring them all together, the whole is greater than the parts. Mm -hmm. So we we only have about a a half a minute left. Um, This is is really exciting stuff that you're working on and very impactful. So I'm hoping that folks will be able to carry on this conversation with you and um, we can spread the word, the good word about what you're up to. So how might folks uh, find you and reach out? Absolutely. So you can research, search my name, um, Dr. Angela Jackson, to find my latest work on Twitter and LinkedIn. Every month I share my ideas in an article for Medium. You can find that that writing at Angela-Jackson.com medium.com. And I just really appreciated this opportunity um, to talk to your audience. This has been fantastic and just really appreciate the work that you're doing mm-hmm. in this space to, to shine more light on people who are doing good in the world and, and investing in a different way. Carol, thank you for your time. Mm, thank you, doctor. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I really hope that at some point you can come back and share more about everything that you're doing and some, you know, who, who it is that has won the grand challenge. And um, yeah, this is, this is amazing. Um, yeah, I would, Carol would love to do that. And when we have the finalists, I'll share them with you because already there's been some impactful stories coming out of these innovators and they all have proximity, like just their stories on how they decided to work on the problems that they did will blow you away. I'll bet. I'll bet. Another lucky day here at Heartstock Radio. I'm excited and we shall be back with you next week. Um, This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Clark Grant is in the studio. We'll see you next week. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. 
Hear our live programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at ButteAmericaRadio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sun.